0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Now first, a uh, quick mention about the USB thumb drives that I've now shipped to almost everybody who made a donation of $45 or more during our pledge drive. The uh, last three are going to go out on Monday, uh, at least the last three that I still have addresses for, because I'm still waiting for a few more addresses. So if you think that you should have had your drive by now, but it hasn't arrived, well, please send me your address to donations at matrixmasters, all one word, matrixmasters.com. And uh, on that thumb drive, of course, are 128 little sound bites uh, of Terrence, plus the 400, uh, pot first 400 podcasts. And uh, I'll have a little bit more to say about the Terrence McKenna sound bites in a future podcast. Now, before I introduce the talk today, I, I need to let you know that I was mistaken in my previous podcast when I said that this series of talks was given in 1989. I don't, uh, well, I really don't know what I was thinking when I said that, because the talk in my previous podcast, and the one we are about to listen to right now, were actually recorded in August of 1996, which means that it was only 18 years ago and not 25, as I mistakenly said last week. Sorry about that. So, if you've uh, been with me here for a while, you've heard me say that I was never really taken, uh, very much taken, with Terrence McKenna's time wave theory. Of course, uh, that's really easy to say now that 2012 has come and gone. I realize that. But in any event, uh, in the past I've elected to not play some of his uh, hour, multi-hour long, day-long discussions about it. However, uh, I am leaving in a bit about the time wave in the talk that uh, you and I are about to listen to, and it's uh, mainly for the sake of letting some uh, some of the newcomers to the mind of McKenna hear how captivating and logical it all sounded at the time. Keep in mind that this was recorded now in 1996, and uh, my guess is that uh, I think you're probably going to find it quite interesting. So, uh, now let's rejoin Terence McKenna and some of his friends on what I assume was a beautiful August day in 1996.
1: What did you make of it? I mean, that's the basic question. What do you make of this? Well,
2: someone asked me to, to explain what you, <laughs> you talked about, or what, what psychedelics, um, what, yeah, I guess in a sense, I was trying to say something, and... About how I how I feel. Why would I come back today? To listen to you. Uh-huh. Uh, it's um. It wasn't a sense of hope. Um, <laughs> for but it's more of a sense of understanding. Um, I don't. Know, deepening of some sort of understanding of like sometimes I'll contemplate. Well, how come? Oh, I know what I was saying. I was saying that. Um, how come? humans think that they're more aware than the whole rest of the everything else and i was sitting at the squatting down on the bath floor with a squirrel i guess giving him a a nut and i was eating a nut and we were just both there eating nuts and looking at each other eating the nuts and i thought
1: i noticed a lot of squirrels in the bath
2: (laughs) yeah it's because of the cornmeal that's partly my i should have known like there. I felt like we were just sitting there eating nuts together, and we're on the same level. And like, I was raising my eyebrows, going, "Good nuts, you know." And <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was like doing this thing with his jaw. You know, I guess it doesn't have eyebrows. You know, kind of just answering back. And and my think- my thought was, well, the whole part of like psychedelics is you start to feel like you're with in oneness with all other atoms around, whether it's a tree or rock or you know another human being or, or an animal or whatever, and um, and it's that that feeling of oneness that rather than that thinking, oh, I'm more conscious than anybody, all the other animals on the planet, that that you go aha and you feel really good about, it. and that's kind of that same that feeling with psychedelics is you feel more connected with everything, and. Um, And so in a sense, all of a sudden, I I thought, well, maybe this is a flip-back, you know. Now, we take psychedelics and we feel the separation of, oh, yes, I'm more, uh, you know, of higher consciousness rather than the original, which was the union with everything.
1: Well, one of the things my brother mentioned this weekend to me was the idea that maybe we could come to a place where every eye that looks out at nature had intelligence behind it and the concept of human intelligence you know that dead song you are the eyes of the world if we could somehow disperse intelligence into nature I mean maybe this is what the human mission is is to bring intelligence into focus and then somehow give it back and awaken the natural world, not to say that it isn't awakened, who can presume to know. Uh, Yeah, one of the nice things about being in Manhattan is you never have to worry that you're the smartest person in the room, because you never are, you know. In other places you might be able to get this together through intense social management, but there it, it fails sort of like being in a rainforest in that sense. Yeah. Uh, I, I was intrigued with some of the things you just you mentioned in passing, like seeds from which cities would grow, and uh, I to know where I could learn more about um, those ideas. That's
3: pretty out
1: there. Well, visit uh, Eric Drexler's webpage or read his book, The Engines of Creation. Uh, yeah, this idea that I mean, the, the, the O's which we talked about last night were bio, techno, nano, and I don't think we talked about fungo, but we certainly could. Huh? SpaghettiOs, Spaghettios, Cheerios. <laughs> uh, nanotechnology is moving so quickly, not because the army wants it or capitalism wants it. It's moving so quickly because all the best people refuse to work on anything else simply because it's so cool and, you know, what? why you should have 10,000 steam engines on a one-centimeter chip and what can you do with a steam engine that produces one ten-thousandth of a millinewton of force and costs, you know, 0.0 uh, oh mil to produce. It remains to be seen. I mean, it's, it's an entirely different way of thinking about what machines are. I mean... Uh, not only, as I talked about last night, getting away from toxic high temperatures, but just the power over matter that that represents is some kind of arrival at the end of a long technological road that we've been pursuing since the first flint was chipped maybe half a million years ago. Uh, the holy grail of nanotechnology is this thing called a matter compiler. And a matter compiler does to matter what an SGI indigo does to graphic images. In other words, anything you can imagine. And it it builds three-dimensional objects essentially out of air, out of mud, out of slurry, seafloor, some rich, heavy metal-rich slurry of material is coming into this thing, and out of it are coming sewing machines, mandarin oranges, bicycles, electronic components, spaghettios, and in Neil Stephenson's novel, The Diamond Age, rice, they're feeding China out of matter compilers. That's what I referred to last night when I said how revolutionary it would be to break the human agricultural cycle and what a relief this might be for the earth if we didn't have to produce our food by agricultural methods, vast amounts of the earth could be reclaimed or turned fallow there have been revolutions like this before that have forestalled uh, human and uh, ecological catastrophe, for example cities themselves, the decision of human beings about 10,000 years ago to aggregate very tightly into fixed settlements probably gave the earth a great deal of breathing room for a long time. If we had continued with our system of nomadic pastoralism, it required thousands and thousands of square miles to support very small populations. So, uh, In a sense, there have been in the past episodes where we took steps to slow our impact on the environment. One of the funny things that emerges out of nanotechnology, from my point of view, is, you know, I'm very gung-ho for the idea that there isn't much time left and that 2012 represents this huge phase shift and it's only now 16 years away. But a funny thing, with nanotechnology, you can stretch time by a factor of a million. Uh, Even though 2012 is only 16 years away, with the correct technological approach, we can forestall it forever by simply scaling down, you know, scaling down, Mm -hmm. so that when you live... In the domain and at the speed of microbes, 16 years is uh, 50 million generations in the distant, far-flung future. It's weird how time is plastic and subject to scale in that way.
2: What is it about you focusing on?
1: if what the universe is doing is generating and then conserving and then novelty and then building further novelty upon it well then in some sense we represent uh, the novelty of novelties of novelty we we are where nature's eggs have tended to all roll to the bottom of the basket and we're it uh, and so then our role in transforming the planet, the ecosystem, our social systems and technologies and everything becomes much more part of the cosmic drama, a continuation of the evolutionary drama. And then the question, but the really weird part of this whole rap is the nearness of this date. I think you could peddle this pretty easily if you were just vague about the date and said something like, sometime in the next thousand years, and then people would see who Who couldn't line up for that? Mm -hmm. It's this, it is now thing, sort of the guy with the beard on the corner, uh, repent and be (laughs) safe. Um, I don't know what led into that, but uh, uh, time is a very interesting problem and not well dealt with, I think, in Western science. Probability theory is very fuzzy, uh, and as the answers required or the questions asked in science become more precise, it becomes less, uh, less satisfying. Albert, are you ready oh. to go here? <laughs> no, no, i
3: <I'm> just... <laughs> <laughs> Launch when
1: ready. <laughs> no,
3: I, I, I'll, I'll ask just sort of a, just a, a query, um, just sort of tying back to something you were talking about with the nano machines. You, you were saying that he could sort of stretch out time by scaling down.
1: Uh-huh.
3: Um, and the fact that sort of this great thing that was going to happen in 2012, you know, um, it, it, it was okay in as it's it, That's the flavor, but it was okay because we could sort of scale time up for us. We could be, learn to stretch it out. Uh, and just, I'm just curious, and I'm bringing this up again, or going back to this just because it sounds relevant, uh, how, how how time can be stretched out in that way. that you, if, if you could talk more about that. Is it just about more events happening?
1: Well, that's one thing, uh, it, it's just simply more events happening. In other words, at that nano level, activity is so furious, uh, that in terms of events per second, there are millions of them at the, at the quantum mechanical level, but, but there is a deeper level than that, and that is the, the, the attractor in the phase space, if in the novelty theory, is somewhat like a black hole. Well, a black hole has this thing called an event horizon. And so if to an observer exterior to the system, let's think of a spaceship approaching a black hole to an observer outside the system the the spaceship appears to eventually disappear down the drain and is sucked into the hole but because of relativistic stretching inside the hole for the people on the spaceship essentially uh, they fall forever they never reach they never move beyond the event horizon and so uh time is very plastic and slippery, and you cannot assume that what one observer is assuming is general for the system. That's why, you know, I'm very sort of tongue-in-cheek about all these apocalyptic prophecies and when we get there and what will it be like and those kinds of questions, because because it is a singularity, it's bound to be hideously slippery and difficult, to uh, actually confront, uh, so falling forever. Like for instance, one way to think of uh, the time wave, because it, and for the group, I'll say the way the way the assumption that is operating in novelty theory is that you have a series of nested cycles, and that each cycle is one sixty-fourth as large as the cycle that preceded it. So let's say we start, just for purposes of example, with a universe that it, whose age is 72 billion years. That's a lot longer than is thought to be the age of this universe, which is somewhere between 12 and 16 billion years. They're fighting over it now in the Captain's Tower. But let's imagine a universe uh, of 72 billion years with a built-in collapse factor of 64 and a nested set of cycles of natural law, well, then, um, uh, 1.8, divide 72 by 64, and it's a number like 1.3 or something. So 1.3 billion years before you got to the end of this 72 billion year universe there would be a transition into a new regime of natural law. Maybe it's biology. Well, then divide 1.3 billion years by 64 and you get, I don't know what, let's take a guess, 275 million years. Well, that's the... Emer- and so a new set of, of emergent phenomena come into the picture at that point. Let's call them advanced higher animals, land animals. Well, then the next cycle is uh, 1.4 million years. Well, that's... Or 2.5 million years. Well, so let's call that the emergence of the higher primates. And the next is 175,000 years. Let's call that the emergence of Homo sapien. And the next is... uh, 4,500 years, let's call that the history of the world. And the next is 67 years, let's call that World War II to 2012. And the next is 384 days, Uh, and that's the year of the jackpot that begins late in 2011. Now, notice that at this point, we have gone through uh, six or seven levels. Uh, in order to get to the domain of Planck's constant, 6.55 times 10 to the minus 23rd erg seconds, technically known as a jiffy, in order to get down to the realm of the jiffies, which is the grain of the universe in quantum mechanical terms, uh, it's going to take 13 more involutions of that cycle. So what we're saying is a universe structured like this with this collapse factor in it, a universe 72 billion years old would undergo two-thirds of its its morphological unfolding. In other words, two-thirds of its developmental processes would occur in the last six days of its existence. Do you see what it is? It's the spin-in, it, it spins faster and tighter. So half of the evolutionary unfolding of that kind of universe would occur in the last few days of its existence. Most of it would occur in the last few milliseconds as it transited level after level after level. That's the kind of situation that I think we're in. and each epoch becomes a dimension for the expression of feeling and complexity in some kind of white sense. Each one of these is, in and of itself, a universe of feeling and intentionality in the history of the universe as it makes its way toward the, the point singularity where all... Things are cotangent and all limitations are, uh, are overcome. So uh, trying to feel where we are in that process, saying there are only 16 years left is one way of thinking of it. Another way of saying, thinking of it is that the universe still has two-thirds of all of its development ahead of it in the future. Does that address your thing? Yeah,
3: no, that's helpful. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm curious if you have any ideas about what happens at that singularity. I mean, does time lose meaning? Does Is it just kind of like asking the question, what is the point south of the South Pole? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just curious what happens to time at that point. Is there something like 2013, or are we just sort of in a... I mean, what I guess I could imagine is that just because... Well, it
1: seems to me what happens is that this cotangentiality phenomenon is happening now. In other words, what's happening is that three-dimensional space and time is becoming more and more connected. Everything is becoming more connected. Well then, so the logical extrapolation of that process is that you will approach a point in time where everything is connected to everything else. Well, so then the question becomes, or the question that's being asked is, what happens after that? And I think the answer is that the process of connectivity somehow bursts out of the dimensional confinement and, and then you get a, an entry into s- hyperspace, whatever that means. In other words, the, the information has filled the system and somehow then, it bursts the bounds of the system in some kind of, you know, a gredelian explosion of some sort. And uh, then it begins to define itself in a higher dimension. And life, we see that nature does this. We just can hardly imagine what it ha- is like to experience it, A, and what it is like in a regime of conscious intelligence. Uh, yeah. One thing that I've thought about trying to imagine all this happening without you know, the direct descent of God Almighty into the stream of history and such imponderable and difficult-to-picture scenarios as that, uh, is there something that could arise out of us which would fulfill this and somehow everybody could say, yeah, well, they were right and that did happen, but nevertheless, we can still, you know, have sausage for breakfast. Well, one thing that I've thought of, and I've talked in these groups about it a little bit, is uh, what the vicissitudes of the wave seem to describe most accurately when all the shouting is, done, is technological and intellectual advance. And so, is it possible that this bursting out of the Newtonian three-dimensional space-time continuum could be a technological breakout? And it could take the form of um, a very, very powerful engine of some sort like that could push a large mass close to the speed of light but more appealing and easier to understand I think is a time machine um, but um, it occurs to me that there, there may be something else happening here um, and again to understand it here's a metaphor Notice that we live in an extremely high-tech world with the Internet and, uh, you know, potential AIDS vaccines and uh, interplanetary probes and all that. But some people in this world are bare-ass naked in the rainforest trying to decide if they're going to go with boats, which they've been observing and have now decided are here to stay. Well, if you ask the question... Who's influencing who? Clearly, we have an overwhelming influence on these rainforest people. Uh, Their lifestyles are crumbling under an onslaught of transistor radios, packaged food, pornography blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, I don't see anything happening around here except maybe an occasional shaman is brought through that indicates that they're having much of an impact on us. Well, so imagine if it were possible to have a a technology of time travel. Uh, I think that what would happen in that case is that... uh, what one would think of as time travel would instead turn into a technology for causing the rest of history to happen instantly. In other words, to avoid all of these paradoxes, uh, you would initiate, you know, the temporal equivalent of a chain reaction, and the rest of history would just unravel on the real very quickly so that the most technologically advanced state would spread backward through the temporal medium in the same way that the most advanced cultural state in the world today is spreading through the spatial medium of the planetary geography. Do you see what I mean? It's a kind of a god whistle. You think you're building a time machine, but what you discover the moment you turn the time machine on is that you have brought the final evolutionary uh, achievement of the universe appears right on your front step in the next millisecond. Yeah.
2: We were talking about dissipative structures before, and how I how I understood it is that you're taking like negative entropy in it, more structure, but you give um, waste out all the time too. And if you see the globe or like all the um, human societies on the earth, like a dissipative structure, there needs to be the waste somewhere, like, and you need to to create a distance between these structured. Um, systems and the ways somewhere around and I wonder how you put that together with your theory of time or of novelty
1: well the entire planetary environment is an open system because it's being run off extraterrestrial energy delivered by the sun if it weren't for the sun the earth would quickly go into uh, a crisis uh... There is no problem with the generation of waste as long as the generation of waste cycle doesn't exceed the capacity of the system to absorb it. And this is our problem. Not that we produce waste, but that we produce it too fast. Uh, One of the things my brother pointed out was if if you really believe nanotechnology is coming then the shrewdest investment that you can make are landfills. Because landfills are filled with metal, glass, plastic, rare elements, rare chemicals, all these things which these little nanocytes, these flea-sized and smaller robots, are going to go after. I mean, those will be the great... Uh, Mining and extraction mm-hmm. sites uh, of the future, mm-hmm. um, quite quite logically, because you'll you'll be using all of that material. It's already in a highly refined state. Uh, in fact, the great thing about nanotechnology is because these machines are so small, the current standing crop of metals presently on the earth is probably enough for the rest of human history, if it's a nanotechnological history. There would be no need to extract more gold, more platinum, more iridium. We, we have enough for nanotechnological purposes, probably by orders of magnitude we, we have enough. Uh, the point, see, the goal is to take nature as the model and to say, okay, we want to build things. Well, who's been building longest? Nature. Who's been building most efficiently? Nature. Who's been building with the least toxic output and so forth and so on? Nature, nature, nature. So we are builders. So let us learn then from the master builder. And of course, until we can do it perfectly, we will do it imperfectly. But more perfectly than we're doing it now, we finally at last sort of cited what the deal is with building stuff. Oh, it's supposed to be biodegradable, non-toxic, user-friendly, nutritious, brightly colored, you know, whatever. And so uh, the way nature does it is atom by atom and using, you know, molecular long-chain polymers with molecular transcription to run through ribosomes which read these things. I mean, as you descend into the, sub, into the molecular and the submolecular realm, it becomes startlingly machine-like. I mean, nature is the perfect machine. It's, there is no difference. Our machines are hideous. And you know, run at high temperatures are toxic. I mean,
3: that's part of the question I have: is you know, nature already made like you put this little seed in the ground and it turns into a huge tree.
1: And how can we improve on that? It seems like it's already a perfect system that's been developed. Well, we it, it is a perfect system developed for the ecosystem in which it inserts itself. I mean, it's a product of evolution. We, by being minded, have we can use the techniques of nature to serve the design uh, agendas of of culture or of human society. Um, that's the difference. I mean, really, my vision is of a partnership. I don't. I think that I talked last night about what I called the forward escape, where there's no way back. To simplicity, not without slaughtering four out of all five people. You know, I mean, even a billion people is too much. There's no way back to the simplicity that we once knew, but there may be a way forward to the simplicity that we once knew. But we have to uh, become fully responsible and entirely capable you know not half responsible and half capable which is the present situation capability means power immense power but it, power means responsibility in other words we can't evade our the curious moral dimension that attends our enterprise given the fact that we are conscious beings But we can be responsible. Uh, Like my notion is, really, in a sense, the human imagination, which is our great glory, has grown so powerful that we can barely unleash it on the surface of the planet. I mean, it's like trying to drive a fire truck around the nursery. The nursery can't handle this. The nursery is small and confined so responsibility means uh, respecting nature but also making a place for the novelty that is resident in the human possibility because nature also did that I mean nature risked everything on this planet on this particular experiment and I, don't ima- I imagine nature is well-pleased. Uh, I mean, we're as successful as everything else nature ever attempted to do. I mean, when she wanted to make octopi, she made them. When she wanted to make uh, machine-building, neurotic, tormented human beings, she made them in spades. Well,
3: what if um, something like the Cultural <laughs> Revolution in China were to occur? There you had a group of people who decided to destroy everything that was old and traditional in that culture what if humans came to the point where they realized that all our technology was so grossly unsatisfying that we just kind of went on some kind of rampage to destroy everything that was modern and technological um, in some kind of self-destructive mode in order to get back to a more nature-based uh, satisfying
1: lifestyle. Well, I, this could probably be done, but I would bet you that as soon as people pick themselves up off the floor, they'd start the long march forward again. Because I think tool making is, you know, what we do, and it's just irrepressible. We we are the creature, you know, in the same way that abalone's make abalone shells, we construct. Uh, Technologies—it's irrepressible, I think. I mean, it might take different directions. Like maybe you're thinking of Dune, where uh, in this was in Frank Herbert's science fiction novel, they had a rule: "Thou shalt make no machine in the image of the human mind." And in the name of this rule, they had destroyed all computers, and consequently. Uh, They were telepathic, and they had powers of language and telepathy. Uh, But on the other hand, it it was a startlingly primitive world. I mean, our thing is not... I don't think we can... Our machines are such a basic part of our cultural uh, toolbox now for instance, you know, the world price of gold is set every day by machines. The decisions of to how much titanium and silver should be extracted from mines to enter the pipeline of the manufacturing process, this is all determined by machines. Now in Silicon Valley, when they want to design a chip with certain, to meet certain engineering specifications, they don't design the architecture of the chip they tell machines what they want the chip to do and machines actually make the design decisions so but i don't find this horrifying at all i mean i remember in the 50s one of the fantasies was that we would in the future we would live in a world run by machines uh well, instead we live in a world run by politicians, mafias, advertising conspiracies, pharmaceutical companies, and political pressure groups. I'd take machines any day against that crowd and their wonderful impartiality. And, yeah. I mean, that.
3: when listening, that's the question I ask myself is... is this radical change of psychology Mm -hmm. with the power base, with our concept of what power is,
0: our egos hanging on, is it the the return to this pre-ego state with a technology to assist us?
1: In a sense, I think it is, because I think you're right, that power has always before meant ideology the Christians had the power, or the Marxists had the power, or the Nazis, or the communists. Now, I feel like we have come to the end of ideology, that the bankruptcy of ideology is displayed for all to see, and that the business of government and destiny, which used to be in the hands of ideologues, has moved over into the hands of managers. And it's all become rather humdrum. It's all about, you know, will the investment policies support the health care promises made to the population? Will the production of drugs meet the demands created by the ebb and flow of epidemic diseases? It's all about management. I think our exhaustion with ideology is very healthy. I'm not, I don't think there are good and bad ideologies. All ideology is bad. And it's taken us, you know, a thousand years to sort this out. And we had to have Auschwitz and we had to have Stalingrad and we had to have just how many times did you have to have your nose rubbed in it before you realize, you know, that ideologies are cultural means they are the most confining of the cultural means. I mean, that's where culture gets real ugly is when you rub up against its ideologies. So by turning a lot of these, manage- these middle management and bureaucratic functions over to machines, we're signaling that we're not interested in that anymore.
0: And yet the ego, I see... Ego is alive
1: and well as it's ever been in my lifetime. Well, ego is not the same thing as ideology. I agree with you. What we now have, and this is this question that keeps coming up in so many different forms, what we now have is the freedom which attends decadence uh, or the decadence which attends freedom. Uh, By being liberated from ideology we essentially are invited to be all we can be, but we are free, in James Joyce's phrase, to flop on the seamy side. And, you know, without Christianity, without democracy, without, you know, these great inspiring... And so this is the question, why does all freedom end in sadomasochism? Why does it do all efforts at liberation end uh, in... Uh, recidivism and repression is this a natural law or this is we've had a bad string of experiences with this but it's not written adamantine Uh, I still I, I for me it's an issue of are we afraid of ourselves and we inherit a huge bunch of ideological baggage Not only Christianity, but Freudianism and Marxism, which requires, you know, a dictatorship of the proletariat and so forth and so on. We inherit all kinds of ideological baggage designed to make us fear ourselves. I mean, what is held against any theory of excess freedom is that it will bring chaos and anarchy. Well. This may be precisely what the doctor ordered. Beyond ideology lies chaos and anarchy. Uh, the, the fact that the internet is so chaotic is, I think, its great charm. It seems like a frontier, you know, no law west of the modem, uh, yet, and hopefully not for a while. Uh, I mentioned in another context, but not to this group, but I guess this is in the air, this French historian, and I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name, but uh, Raoul Vanigen, Venigen, who wrote this thing called The Brotherhood, uh, the Movement of the Free Spirit. And uh, it, it discusses a heresy in, that had great currency in the Middle Ages. And the heresy had many names and different forms, but it always revolved around the proclamation that human beings are perfect. Human <coughs> beings are perfect. And it was fascinating to feel my own reactions as I read this, because I certainly am, I don't consider myself Catholic in reflex and I'm trying to be a good anarchist, and I lean toward the idea that man is perfect, but reading about a group of people who absolutely believed and acted this out uh, pushes you up against it. Because, you know, if man is perfect, theft is all right, murder is all right, murder of your own children is all right, on and on and on. So then you think, well then, so hmm, so apparently I don't think man is perfect. Well then, so where do I draw the line? It, uh, the fact that people in the 1200s could make this leap to proclaim this and then to live it, they lived it. So they didn't work and they didn't stay in the villages and no one would have anything to do with them except people who agreed with them. And so there, were these, there was this counterculture in medieval Europe of these large camps of people outside major towns where everybody who was there, by being there, was committed to the idea that anyone could have sex with anyone else, that anyone could take anything by anyone else and use it as their own, that no one had to answer to anyone else, that there was no authority so forth and so on. Well, the church burned these people with endless zeal, uh, you can imagine. Uh, and even for us, reading this, it shows you how deeply we carry the idea of our uh, shadow and how profoundly convinced we are that we pose a great danger to each other. And that we must mitigate this with law and rules and psychotherapy and drugs and high walls and uh, and so forth and so on. This, this bombing of these airplanes and then the Olympics and the stuff on and on and on is so clearly designed to uh, replace... The rather, I imagine, unviolent and humdrum world you live in. I mean, when was the last time you saw several people blown apart by plastique? Not recently, I'm willing to bet, unless you just shipped in from Algeria. But you're asked to give up your experience and replace it with a mediated created a media created world of exploding airliners sinister international organizations and so forth and so on Uh, this ability to use the deaths of what are trivial numbers of people I mean, in the same week that these 200 people were blown out of the sky, 6,000 people died on the American highways and there was not a mention of that. So the de- the exaggerated focus on, on uh, certain situations and the deaths of certain designated high-profile groups of people permits uh, an incredible paranoia and an incredible... Uh, erosion of any effort uh, to create community this is uh, these are decisions not be made by machines machines would never act with uh, so deep an insight into human psychology these are uh, you know machine uh, decisions initiated by human managers playing the old- style game
2: mm-hmm. well it's
1: not just it seems like it's not just
3: managers, designists, individuals who love this kind of news who, you know, who, whose favorite type of entertainment that they pay to see is, is these violent movies
2: with people being blown up.
1: Well, we are all guilty to the degree that we tolerate and consume this stuff. Uh, I mean, prurience has always been the path to riches. Was it P.T. Barnum who said nobody ever went broke underestimating the taste of the American people? Uh, I'm sure that that's quite true.
3: Uh, so, so to what do you ascribe this desire that seems to uh, arouse from individuals?
1: Well, I personally, and I'm willing to extend it to my friends and my enemies, I personally do not enjoy seeing uh, violence or people being tormented or children being abused or this sort of thing. Uh, When I was in Boulder, I met a friend of mine that I hadn't seen for 25 years and uh, asked him what he was up to. And what he's doing is he's founded a company called Rocky Mountain Media Watch. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they have 150 people who work for them in 150 cities, and once a week these people make a uh, video cassette off the TV of the uh, the evening news, the local evening news hour, and they ship all these tapes to Boulder, and they have rooms full of people watching these things on screens and scoring... uh, how much of this hour went to ecological stories how much went to lost pet stories how much went to toxic waste stories how much went to the circuses in town stories and i said well paul what is the deal with uh, violence and what's going on and he said whoa it's very simple we've seen it thousands and thousands of times the most fu- in a half hour show the most violent part of the show uh, occurs uh, immediately before the longest commercial. Mm-hmm. And the, you are brought to this state of adrenal excitement. And I said, well, do people enjoy watching people shot and blown up? And he said, no, no, you can put electrodes on them and you can tell that it raises anxiety and it raises adrenaline levels. But he said the whole point is then you cut to the commercial, you bring on images of sexuality, of flesh, of soft music and of the product and the product then becomes associated with a security. It's all about, look at this horrible death, manglement, horror, now, and this wonderful soap which will give you social confidence and make your hair shiny and your underarms inoffensive. And, uh, and this game is played three or four hundred times a night with monkeys on the receiving end you know, people who who you know take Ross Perot seriously and fear visits by alien proctologists. That population are uh, you know being subject to this hammering stimulus response thing. Well, it's no it's no wonder that people are just totally clueless. The cultural engines are becoming. Uh, almost unmanageably dangerous for the unsophisticated. This is what I meant last night when I said there are two kinds of people. There are artists and marks. Not in a a tone of superiority. We're the artists and we're on the inside and so uh, we're immune and the marks, fuck them, they're all lost souls. No, every one of us every day is tested to see... Are you an artist or are you a Mark? In this moment, are you an artist or are you a Mark? In this situation, are you an artist or are you a Mark? And, you know, everybody tumbles both ways several times a day. And uh, uh, I don't know exactly what to do about it. I mean, Joseph Goebbels really turned it loose inside the 20th century. I mean, this has all been developed since the thirties, you know, advertising techniques, techniques of behavior modification, ways of insinuating uh, complex messages (coughs) into people and getting them to respond. The antidote is, uh, in that environment, you cannot flee from it. You cannot avoid it. What you have to do is produce output, output, into this ocean of competing means. Output and uh, and subversion and sophistication. You have to be, I think, very, very... Uh, this is no environment for the credulous, the epistemologically naive, uh, those driven by inner imbalances to uh, adoration and belief. I mean, I really believe, I think I said last night, uh, salvation through uh, skepticism, hope through skepticism, uh, because uh, it's too difficult to tell what's going on. The only reliable indicators in this world are feelings and mathematics. And mathematics has been torn from you as an option in the process of infantilization that we're denouncing here. So all you have left are your feelings, 90% of us.
2: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Am I mistaken, or at the beginning of this talk, was Terrence talking about a Star Trek replicator, uh, but he was calling it a matter compiler? (laughs) Maybe I uh, shouldn't have binged-watched that uh, Star Trek series, I guess. And, uh, anyhow, didn't you find it interesting when he went off on that writ about how the then-current terrorist activities were conveniently being planned to keep humans in a constant state of fear as a means of control? And keep in mind uh, the fact that uh, Terrence died before the 9-11 events, uh, of which I will only say that... While magicians use misdirection to pull off their magic, uh, haven't you always wondered what magic took place while we were all looking at those two high-rise office buildings implode? And uh, moving on. I guess that uh, since I'm in this group, though, I should also add my two cents about what Terrence was saying about not watching scenes of violence. I couldn't agree more. I've uh, I've had dozens of friends, not to mention my own children, who can't understand why I've never seen the Game of Thrones or uh, what's that other big one? Uh, yeah, the Hunger Games. I think that's another one. I haven't even watched the trailers for those shows. You know, I've, I've seen all of the violence that I ever need to see and uh, some of it I saw close up. And it isn't as easy to deal with as it uh, maybe seems in the movies. So uh, I miss a little of what the current uh, culture is all about, but uh, hey, I miss Tiny Tim too and I'm not really feeling too left out. Anyhow, I guess I'm just becoming a grumpy old curmudgeon, but after sampling what passes for, uh, well, <laughs> I don't even know what it passes for, but whatever they are now showing on the Fox channel, it sure does confirm that uh, P.T. Barnum quote that Terrence just recited. And uh, while I'm still on my high horse... My horse is not high, no. (laughs) But uh, while I'm at it, I I just want to add that it really does pain me to uh, say anything negative in a sentence with the word fox in it. You see, my mother's maiden name was Fox, Ruth Fox, and the dominant male influence during my first four years of life was my grandfather, Dan Fox. So uh, just as not all conservative Republicans are bad, well, not everything named Fox is all bad either. Now, where do I go from here? (laughs) How do I segue somewhere? Let's try a new direction. Uh, I realized that uh, one of the things that so endeared Terence to us all was uh, his sometimes wild predictions. For example, uh, a while back he was speculating that uh, perhaps a highly disruptive technology would change everything, and uh, as he often did, he picked time travel as his disruptive technology. Well, what if we lower the rhetoric a bit and uh, think about a technology that, uh, well, while not able to move us forward and backward in time, it could do something just as disruptive? What if on a smaller but no less disruptive scale, there was a technology that eliminated the necessity for institutions of trust so that we would no longer need a court system to determine who owns what? What if we had a technology that eliminated the need for banks, for credit card companies, and even eliminated national boundaries? What if there was a technology where you knew for sure whether the stranger you just met was who he or she says they are, and not an ARC? And that's uh, just the tip of the iceberg that's uh, called Bitcoin. You know, I'm just saying. Now, uh, this doesn't have anything to do with... uh, (laughs) Well, I guess it doesn't have anything to do with anything, uh, other than the fact that In the past, I've promised to let you know about any curious synchronicities that happen. So, uh, I'd been listening to the recording that I just now played, and uh, I was amplifying the parts where people asked questions, you know, and cutting out things you couldn't hear. But after a while, I got up and walked around a bit so as to uh, keep my back from hurting by sitting too long. And when I came back to the computer, there was uh, an email message waiting for me from John, who is a fellow saloner from New Zealand, And he sent a link to an article about how Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, had been influenced by psilocybin mushrooms. It was a a really interesting article, and so I posted it in my Psychedelic Salon online magazine, and uh, then I sent a note to John thanking him for sending me the link. That message was sent at 1.43 p.m., at 1.49 p.m., I returned to listening to the talk that we just heard, and only ten seconds or so after I hit play was when Terrence McKenna said, Maybe you're thinking of Dune. Now, the reason that comment stopped me in my tracks was that at that very moment, I actually was thinking about the fact that Timothy Leary's personal copy of Dune, inscribed and autographed by the author, was now safely in the library of my friend Bruce Damer. So do you get the picture? I've just turned on the player. My thoughts are still focused on Bruce's book, so I missed the first couple of words that Terrence said. And as my focus turns to Terrence's voice, he says, maybe you're thinking of (laughs) Dune. And that's why this podcast is a day late. When that happened, I decided to turn off my computer for the day and revisit Dune. But so far, I haven't come up with anything of importance to me about that little synchronicity. So... Maybe this is a message for you. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.